Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 more than that because it's saying that sex is essential in the same way that gender and race is. Correct. Yeah. And that's 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 like where most religions separate those things out and say that mm-hmm. your race is sacred, your gender is sacred, and sex is also sacred, which means there's a proper way to use it. And culture is picking up on two of those and rejecting the third one as part of that um, unity. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse. Well, we're a little bit late on this story, but it's been a fascinating development. And it took it's taken place in Australia. It has gotten a lot of press. We'll put some of these articles into the show notes for you. But this involves a gentleman named Andrew Thornburn, who was formerly a bank executive in New Zealand, then began working in Australia, very respected leader, and was had 30 hours as the chief executive of a very popular football club in Australia. 30 hours. And by football, we mean football with your feet. Yes, Not that's right. This football. is actual. I believe in the United States, we call that soccer. But yes, it's yeah, actual cool. football. Your foot connects repeatedly with said ball 30 hours and the reason was the board of the organization essentially forced his resignation and the reason for that was that was really his membership at a particular anglican church which is theologically conservative there are a number of, of different aspects oh, no. that will the guardian to- has it as a controversial church the Guardian has it as a controversial church. Yeah, it's okay. a controversial church. Not, right. not conservative, so, controversial. Yes, well, okay, so bear with us here as we lay out some of the details, which anybody can look up, but that will build the context for our conversation, right? So it is a theologically conservative church, Anglican church, affiliated with the Acts 29 network. But here's another salient fact, I think. Sermons were... Once he was appointed chief executive of this football club, old sermons, and I do mean old, 2013 sermons from the the lead pastor were aired publicly again. One of them was on the issue of abortion, and the other was on homosexuality. And the pastor expressed a traditional Christian sexual ethic regarding homosexuality. So that is, he condemned homosexual sex. And this became this this led to a scandal. And Andrew and is on the board were, of that church for the last two years, so he's not just a member there. He's on the, he's the chair of the board of the church network. I think, yeah, that's right. And so an ultimatum was imposed on him: either resign from the church, right, or resign your your membership or your board, your status as a board member. From the church and prop did they actually ask him to leave the church entirely that might have been on the table as well yeah i don't know what the how that hair got split there but no yeah he had an option of church or the club i think right in leadership anyway and so yeah and so thornburn said that would violate my conscience i won't do that so he did end up resigning and so this has led to all sorts of very heated discussions about religious freedom. And it is interesting to see some of the responses. So some church leaders have roundly condemned the club and basically said, you're 
you know, it's not just Christians, by the way, who hold to these views. You, you would have to group Muslims and Jewish people in as well who hold to traditions, traditional se- sexual ethics. This is a violation of religious freedom, and this is a clear case of discrimination. Others hold their cards to their chest. One of them who is doing that is Justin Welby, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who happened to be actually visiting Australia during this controversy. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't too thrilled about that, and he refused to make any public comment on it, which I think is kind of a shame, personally. Mm-hmm. But so there, there are a lot of major discussions about religious freedom. And this did take place in Australia, but I think, we think, it highlights a number of concerns that conservative-minded Christians in the United States have as well, especially about religious freedom, changing social mores, and really the changing dynamic of the culture in which we find ourselves. So I think many look at this story and we'll see some uneasy parallels and of course, the question is, what is what's our response? What do we do about this? So I thought we thought that this would be a helpful issue to discuss, and I think it's it's an eye opening story. So, Nathan, I'm curious about your thoughts as as you were as you heard about this story. We both were. It's been percolating for a while, but what got your wheels turning initially as you looked mm-hmm. at this? Yeah, well, I think you have lots of situations in which people find that their employment is incompatible with their faith and need to go a separate way. So that that part's not new. I think some of the cultural assumptions that are baked and embedded within this speak to a lot of the things that we've been saying in the past. And I was thinking particularly of, do you remember we did the podcast on Get Ready to Be Weird? Um, oh, yeah. And we talked about the guy in Australia who wrote a book on that, <laughs> uh, Prepare to Be the Bad Guys. And let me give you some of the, the actual quotes and language. This just shows the difference in the way that people are framing the ideas here. So Thor Byrne would say, my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square. That's how he feels about it. Um, the president of the Australian football club said, well, no, that's a mischaracterization. This is, not, quote, not about vilifying anyone for their personal religious beliefs, but about a clear conflict of interest with an organization whose views do not align at all with our values as a safe, inclusive, diverse, and welcoming club. Now, where it's hard for Christians to grapple with that is they would say, how do you kick somebody out of something because your values are safe, inclusive, diverse, and welcoming? And so what's interesting about this is it it sees religious belief and affiliation as an incidental element of identity. Like, well, he has these religious beliefs, but they don't over they but they don't align with our values. And so the cultural values are more important than the religious beliefs. So that yeah. that's that that's uh th- there's just an interesting like how because I, I guarantee you that guy said that sentence with a straight face and didn't see any contradiction in it at all. Of saying, like, oh no, this isn't about vilifying anybody for their religious beliefs. It's just about having values that don't line up with our inclusion, diversity, safety, and welcoming. Mm-hmm. And a lot yeah. of us are like, ah, there's a there is a connection there somewhere. Yeah. And well, so you have cultural orthodoxy trumping theological orthodoxy there. But also a number of times in these articles, the phrase personal faith is used. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, right? So, or my personal re- religious convictions. So there's a lot of, I, it's it's difficult for me to understand how a man could be forced 
into leaving or, you know, dismissed on the basis of his personal religious convictions. But let's push against that personal for a second. So are they his personal? Personally, of, of course, but your religious convictions always have public consequences. We forget that sometimes, even though that's so basic. That's why I like Leslie Newbigin's phrase, the gospel is public truth. And that means that if, yeah, so in other words, the Christian, for instance, sexual ethic does have public ramifications. It does mean that you have views on the ways in which people ought to lead their lives. So I think I just want to state that for the record, that your faith, if your faith, by the way, has no public consequences for you, or if you find, I sometimes, I've called this in the past, the compatibility test with your culture. So Christianity always brings you into conflict with your culture in some way, shape, or form. It will. And the, the basis of that is really the lordship of Christ. Your primary allegiance as a Christian and as a disciple of Jesus is to him and him alone. And so rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and this is language that's actually used in a Christianity Today piece at the end by some of the commentators on this. They're saying, yeah, it's rendering unto Caesar's, Caesar that which is Caesar's is becoming more difficult in the modern world. But Caesar will always play a secondary role for you. Cultural orthodoxy will always be secondary to your fidelity to Christ. And that's going to bring you into conflict with the surrounding culture in some way, shape, or form. So if you find that your faith, your religious convictions, your personal, your personal religious convictions fit seamlessly with your cultural landscape, you've got a problem. They shouldn't fit seamlessly. There should always at least be tension. But we're crossing a, diff a new kind of Rubicon in, I think, in the West right now. And this is where this is where I'm I'm getting more I think I'm more warming to the notion to the categorization that we've brought up now repeatedly here in some of these episodes from Aaron Wren. He did this in the, mm -hmm. in the first in a first things article where he talked about the three phases of Christianity. He was talking about in America. But right the there's the positive where Christianity is seen as a good thing. You know, it's celebrated even by those outside the church as a good thing. It's it's good for morality. It's, you know, it's a it's a healthy, you know, cultural thing. It's good. Then there's the neutral. And then finally, there's the negative. Christianity is viewed as harmful, pernicious. And this goes to the get ready to be the bad guy kind of way of looking at it, too. But it does it. It certainly seems to be that certainly seems to be the world that's emerging now, I would say. Yeah, so that that's helpful. I think also the just to clarify something while you're saying that I looked it up. So he was told that he could keep his position at the club if he resigned from the church. He felt he couldn't comply with the ultimatum. Um, so yeah, do you think it's like it's also interesting? Like he was not hired to be a marketing person or a moral spokesperson for the club. I mean, he's there for structure and finance. That was his. You know, it's you're 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 going pretty deep in the weeds when you're starting to look at the convictions of senior management embedded in a structure that has nothing really to do with the way that the struct the organization functions or um you, you know it, it's like this mm -hmm. one is a little different yeah. because it's pretty needly as far as going to the depths and it just makes me wonder is this a function because it's a leadership role 
Like, would this team ever have a Muslim player? I'm So, like, how does that work yeah. out? Because I bet you could, because here's what's interesting. The sermons that were preached in connection were from the church with the same pastor before he moved to Australia and before, way before he became a member of the board. So it's not like he was saying these things on a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. It's he was the member of a church who nine years ago said something, and this worked its way all the way back up through the chain of events. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it seems a little different. This one does. Yeah, it's pushing pretty hard because it's also clear that he, he has never been, and by he, I mean Andrew Thornburn, has never been on public record as condemning homosexuality. For so he's never said or done anything that anybody's accusing him of. This is purely, it's his affiliation. Purely affiliation. It's purely affiliation. And you're right. He is not. I mean, he's an he, exec. You know, so chief chief executive is obviously high. You know, major leadership role. But you're right. He's not a front and center spokesman for the club as well. So yeah, there are a number of features here that that make this. It just it looks more and more aggressive in nature and invasive and another so another facet so one one another comment that's that was made on this whole issue came from a gentleman i believe I believe this was the professor who had said well let's look at something that's roughly analogous if he belonged to say another club that excluded you know people of different ethnicities or women you know similar results would have followed. He would have been asked mm. to, you know, disavow that club. But what's happening there, of course, is <laughs> the the Christian, a traditional Christian sexual ethic, and we're seeing this more and more. A well, traditional it's not maybe Christian, just Christians, though. I mean, this is a religious thing okay, beyond, right. but, I mean, so certainly a, Christians a fit within that, but... A traditional sexual ethic of the major monotheistic religions, certainly, is being equated with discrimination. Well, of no, it's, stripes, well, whether it's, yeah, 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 but it's, it's, it's more than that because it's saying that sex is essential in the same way that gender and race is correct. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's like where most religions separate those things out and say that mm -hmm. your race is sacred, your gender is sacred and sex is also sacred, which means there's a proper way to use it. And so because of the sanctity of all three of those categories, there are boundaries in what you do or don't do toward other people um, on, in multiple categories. And so monotheism is looking for consistency and application of the sanctity of categories. But when they bring in the when we bring in the idea of sanctity, we're saying that there's a divine oughtness to the way that these things should mm -hmm. be treated. And culture yep. is picking up on two of those and rejecting the third one as part mm -hmm. of that um, unity. Yeah, and it's important to spell this out as explicitly as we are here, I think, because these we're, we're, what Nathan is doing there is he's pulling out all the hidden assumptions there. Because so often we just get conscripted into these lines of thinking without realizing it. And when it comes to many of our debates about how we live our lives, I always I come back to Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue where he makes, he makes the argument that our moral debates are, the word he uses, interminable. We oh, cannot resolve one. them. Yeah. And the reason we can't resolve them is we cannot reach consensus on the question, what, is, what are human beings for? 
So let's let's separate. Let's let's walk away from such a big category as human beings. Let's just take take sex for 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 as an example. Okay. So what is sex for? Well, Christians will have very definitive answers for that. Sex is for procreation. Sex is for mar- well for marriage, procreation, intimacy, pleasure. So it has. It has a design. It has a place in life. It's also, like Nathan said here, it is not essential. It's not an essential ingredient in a human life. I, I like Sam Albury's line here. If you if you say that sex is essential to identity, you are calling my Lord Jesus Christ subhuman, since Jesus himself was celibate. So now sex is treated, is, is held in very high regard and esteem in scripture. In fact, it's, you know, the it is the metaphor, one of the, you know, for the mystic Christ's mystical union with his church. But those are, so the simple, just even the simple notion that sex has a purpose and a design and an author is profoundly at odds with the cultural zeitgeist. And when you maintain that, you inspire different levels of often anger and fury. And so I think it's important to point that out because we, we, so many of the debates go, they are interminable because people are not, people are operating with profoundly different assumptions about the purpose and meaning of something like sex, for instance. Okay. So, I know I'm, I'm at the risk of coming off topic there, but. No, I think that's helpful. But here's another thing. What's the purpose of a football club? And if it's to like win games by kicking a ball into a net, that's one thing. But also it's is apparently is also part of a there's a culture and an ideal and a community and an ethos that surrounds it as well. That I think I think the thing that may be like we expect all of this to be the way that it works in some ways. Probably the point in which some people would say, hmm, this is new also, is the speed at which it happened and the fact there wasn't really a conversation about it. Like 30 hours, and the football club is backpedaling like crazy to say, oh, no, 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 no. We are not associated. We can't even have somebody who might be affiliated with a Mm -hmm. place in leadership who's also in a place in leadership of something that has an abhorrent view on abortion. So there's a... There's the necessity of a, a moral and virtuous category that goes that functions alongside any structure and organization now. Um, maybe that's always been there, but that hasn't pro- mm-hmm. that hasn't been apparent to me throughout history that that's the uh, that we would know the religious beliefs of the Yankees. Um, well, finance that's manager. partly. Well, you know, there's that real haunting phrase: "The internet never forgets." <laughs> well. Well, but I'm not saying I'm saying that I don't think the memory thing is bad. I, I think the church probably still holds that view and they should. Oh, I sure. mean, so it's it's not like, oh, there was something no, from the that, past that, that we've changed our mind on that they dug sure. up. It's like, no. So I'm I'm not. Yeah. The Internet never forgets. But I'm saying that the. No, uh, it's not that. That's not my point. My point is that's the speed and and, and the efficiency with, with which this moves mm-hmm. now. Because you can, yeah. because the Internet never forgets, you have instant access to all of this. And especially when you're dealing with somebody who's has any, you know, level of fame or notoriety, that, you know, public storm and that PR nightmare that happens can can be instantaneous. Yeah. 30 hours. Okay. So here's what we're so here's what we're discussing then. <laughs> A lot of things apparently. But 
One of those is, is here's a way in which you can really use a story like this as a litmus test for the culture in which you live, in which, how did you phrase it? The speed at which cultural orthodoxy trumped religious orthodoxy or convictions. Yeah, or, yeah, just, that shows yeah. you where your culture is at when it can happen like that. Mm -hmm. Because there probably was a time in Australia where that would have massively gone the other direction um, in the press or the public imagination of, of who's fit for what leadership roles. Um, and the church probably hasn't always and hasn't been always kind to people who held different perspectives and different things too. So yeah, there's a little bit of like, this is the way the world works, but it does serve as a uh, really nice marker for where things are at in Melbourne, at least. It does. And I think, and I think that marks a point of transition here for our conversation because the question I I would imagine on many of our minds is, all right, what do we do? So in one of the articles, a lawyer is on record as saying, well, actually, I think Andrew Thornburn's you know, rights have been violated here. I think there's a strong case for religious discrimination. And I think so I think on many people's minds is probably some form of immediate action. So what do we do? Do we do we fight? Are there, you know, legal battles looming? And do we need to fight those legal battles? So I think we should talk about that a little bit. Because I, I mean, many people are just wondering, how do we actually combat this? What's the best strategy? And part of part of part of this is strange to me, because it is new for us in a country like America. It is not new for most Christians down the ages and certainly not for most Christians in international settings who have had to live in profound tension with their cultural settings. So I think I'm trying to, I think it's, it's going to, we should press into a little bit of processing what a righteous response looks like here. Yeah, well, let me let me just outline uh, a little bit of a difference here because I'm trying to find his actual. Um, where were the titles of the positions that he held? Like this guy. Okay, so he was the so Thornburn was chief of the Bank of New Zealand, and then moved to Australia in 2014 to take a position as the head of the National Australia Bank. Now, why do I say that? I say that because he does not need this job. He thought he, he enjoyed this team from a little kid and did it, I think as a side hobby, it's not like he's going to lose his job and not know how to feed his family. When you've mm -hmm. been the head of two different national banks, you know what I'm saying? Like, so there's a little yeah. bit of a thing of where I think what's the response. I think he did it. The footy club or the church. Sure. And you're going to go with the church. Next question. Um, that being said, he was not in a, I mean, so there's definitely a a personal uncomfortableness. There's the cultural, there's the media side mm -hmm. of this. But financially, for him to lose the job, this job, eh, I don't know, his circumstances, life, he'll just guessing, right. just guessing he'll be all yeah. right. That's not the case for a lot of people in a lot of other situations. And so mm -hmm. the, the decision is the same, but the cost is higher yeah, uh, that's a good in certain point. situations. So we want to just keep that in the back of our mind with whatever we end up saying here the way that this could feel um, is definitely okay, situational. Real quickly. All right, but that brings to mind something else here, Nathan, and I'll bring in Archbishop Justin Welby again here, and I want to make my uh, 
I'm going to try to state this gently and carefully, but this is where I think some of the critics of basically the the neutral model or the faithful presence model might say, well, look at this guy. Look at Andrew Thornburn, who has major success in his career and, you know, is a faithful presence. You know, let's just make, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's doing that. And also, as you just pointed out, Nathan, he's, he's given quite a public, public witness here, his allegiance, he chose the church, but also some, some folks might say, well, yeah, but look, look at him. This is clear. Here's a picture of the negative world. It doesn't matter what your achievement level is. It doesn't matter how distinguished you are in your career or what you've done. If you hold to these traditional views as a Christian now, you will be marginalized and you will be maligned. Welcome to the negative world. And the reason Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby's silence irks me a little bit is because for him to speak on that matter would come at a cost, obviously. And mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, of course, all the ins and outs. I don't know the man's heart. So I'm not presuming any of that. But the, the sort of the very superficial, bland response that he did give reeked of a publicist going through it to me. And that, now, again, somebody like a Justin Welby has a lot to lose. He has a, you know, a massive position of influence and platform, and he's trying to navigate all of that. And I think we're coming to a point where we, we simply need to be willing to be seen as the bad guy and it may come at the cost of so would there would probably be pretty a pretty high cost for somebody in a, the position of a Justin Welby could you know could end what he's doing right now but we need to be willing to do that and i think it's just some it's, it's a picture once again of where we are so i think we need to be realistic about the cost yes but we also need to be willing to think about what we where it's not so much a question of always where our you know where our allegiances lie but also what am i willing to what am i willing to set aside what am i willing to remain silent sometimes i've i've heard arguments well you want to make sure that you don't close doors you want to make sure that you keep those opportunities open but there are times where you actually have to close doors in order in the name of not only intellectual honesty, but for the good of your own soul. And so I think I'm just thinking more along those lines, even as I, a person who makes his, you know, makes his home in the Bible Belt South. Yeah. So the, I guess the, the way that I've been thinking a lot about this, you'll hear us using the word faithful presence here. This is a reference to a book that we really like, James Davidson Hunter's uh, book, To Change the World. I think it has some really uh, incisive and helpful um, analysis of Christian culture making and cultural changing. And he advocates for the idea of a faithful presence, which I think lots of people have found to be a little bit unhelpful in exactly what that means. But I think that if you're a faithful presence, as a result of discipleship rather than as a strategy, it's different. So if if this guy had gone into this club as a strategy of saying, I'm going to go in and change this whole thing from the top down from my executive leadership position, 
uh, and then got tossed out. Like that's basically how organizations rise and fall when people try to change things and people run their agendas through and people vote and there's power and there's money at play and all of that. That's one thing. If you go in and just say, hey, I'm good at this. I enjoy doing this and I'm a Christian and that doesn't work out. I think the Lord provides. So uh, if we're if we're traveling and journeying on the Lord's journey, uh, we submit all the receipts to him is the way that I look at this. So whether we live or die, if we're being faithful and doing the right thing, uh, that's on him. <laughs> we're his men and women to take care of. Uh, Jesus taught a pretty scorching sermon on this one time about why are you worrying about what the pagans worry about? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Uh, so there, there is a little bit of a no holds barred thing that Jesus has going on here. And I think Cameron, you know, the uh, willingness for us to be identified with each other in public, to take up for one another, to encourage one another. When you see somebody make a really difficult moral decision for the sake of their faith, let's be people who encourage that. Let's not take on a victim mindset and say, woe is us and jump right back into the same system in a different posture that Christians are often critiquing. I think we just say, nope, we're about a, a different program and a different business that's bigger. And that is the disruptive element of what he's doing here. He's not saying, well, my church attendance and my job at this football club are exactly equal. And man, I really have to choose between one of these. He's like, no, one of these is way more important to me. One can fit within the other, but at the point that it doesn't, I drop it because it's small and insignificant in comparison to the other commitments that I have. So I think that is probably the thing that we can do now to preemptively prepare ourselves for whatever difficulty we run into is to say, do we have a properly ordered hierarchy in our mind of what our priorities are and what's important to us? And then we live and we function to the best that we can in the light of that, but we don't compromise our morals in order to take that which we hold to a higher standard and reject it in order to step into a lower problem and a less significant organization on the face of the earth. So these are things to watch for, but they're also things I think for us personally to prepare for, but not in a political or a fear or a power struggle sense, but in a personal reorganization of saying, are my priorities in the right place? Would I have made that decision? And may the Lord find us faithful to make those tough choices. And may he give us the grace to be encouraging to one another when we see our fellow brothers and sisters need to do that. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.